Today uh, we're going to be looking at the biography of William Tyndall. But before we delve into the life of this man, we really need to consider the time in which he lived. So today we're traveling back to the 16th century, the early 1500s. And this was a time, just to really put it on the map for you, this was a very severe time, the time when King Henry VIII was on the throne of England. It was a time of the Reformation with Martin Luther. And uh, to really pinpoint it for us, it was half a century before Shakespeare was born. So during this period of time, the Catholic Church had a huge amount of power across Western Europe. And this was a power they had built up over centuries. Um, and and for, for the Catholic Church here, it was very much, they were in power and, and, and they also had power in terms of the state as well. So the state and the church were very much intertwined. The monarchs across Europe were only on the throne if the Pope proved. It was the Pope who had the ultimate power. Now, of course, during this time as well, we know that life was very cheap. Death was everywhere. There were plagues that wiped out whole villages. There was war, brutal punishments. And of course, you know, infant mortality was as high as 50%. But spiritually, this was also a time when the Catholic Church exerted so much authority and and that authority was seen in the daily lives of even the lowest classes. And there were so many dubious traditions that had been built up over centuries, traditions that uh, really had no foundation at all in the scripture. They were really from sort of worldly wisdom, or perhaps more specifically, the, the love of money. A few examples of this. Salvation, for example, was something that you could only receive through the church. So if you're a peasant, it was the local priest that would forgive your sins. And on top of that, they, they had all sorts of other traditions. So there were these things called indulgences. And indulgences were these pre-signed certificates signed by the Pope, which you could purchase for a hefty fee uh, in order to forgive your sins. So you would purchase these things to forgive your sins, and then later this was extended to the forgiveness of a dead relative's sins. So you could purchase these uh, certificates, and hopefully your, the sins of your dead relative were also being forgiven. Now that was important, because also they believed in purgatory and taught this place called purgatory. Purgatory was a temporary holding place where your sins were punished and dealt with before you entered heaven. Now, your time in purgatory depended on two factors. One, the number of sins you needed cleansing from. And two, of course, the, uh, how, how much money your relatives had. And of course, if you questioned any of this teaching, you were labeled as a heretic and burned at the stake. So how on earth did it come to all this? How did the word of the Lord Jesus, how did the teaching of Paul, the scripture, how did it become so corrupted over so short a time? And how did people put up with this, all this teaching which was not at all based in scripture in any, in any, in any way? The reason people did not recognize all of this corruption is because they didn't know the word of God at all. Now, there were a number of reasons for this. Firstly, of course, we need to remember that at this time, the printing press had only just been developed. So books were still hugely expensive. You know, they, they were handwritten. And you see, you know, you would only own a book if you were extremely rich, and maybe then only one or two. The other thing is that the Bible itself, the Catholic Bible, was only written in Latin. And of course, Latin was only understood by the highly educated. And the clergy themselves, the priests, the ones who were meant to interpret the scripture to the people, to teach, well, they hardly understood Latin either. In fact, it was found during this period of time that 
a lot of the clergy could not even translate the first line of the Lord's Prayer into English. They knew how to recite it. They just didn't know what it meant. And on top of that, many of them didn't even know who said the Lord's Prayer or where it was even found. Such was their understanding of the scripture. But then that was not surprising either because the training to become a priest didn't even involve understanding the scripture. You see, the scripture was secondary. The thing that had precedence was the authority of the church and the traditions and the ceremonies. If you could do those, that was enough. You didn't need to understand. So, of course, you can understand now why the common people had next to no understanding of the scripture. They had no ideas what these traditions that they were involved in even meant. And they, they, they didn't know anything about the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And so, of course, the pilgrimages, the relics, the heavy taxations, the indulgences, the confessions, the christenings, the burial rites, all of this continued for centuries and centuries. And people had a great, lived in fear of God, a God in, who, in their minds, was distant and severe and silent. So into this really dark time enters William Tyndall. Now we know that William Tyndall was born around 1494, but of course with these, these dates, you know, not a lot is known of his early life and his childhood and, and things like that. We do know that he was born in Gloucestershire in England. We also know that he was from a middle-class family. They owned land, so they were wealthy enough as well to, to send their, their sons to uh, Oxford for a good education. Tyndall obviously showed promise as a young man, and uh, we know that he went to Oxford around the age of 13 or 14. That was actually normal in those days. You would spend about seven years studying at Oxford. During this time, he would have done the humanities, Latin, Greek, philosophy, and of course, theology. Tyndall really enjoyed theology, but he was so shocked to find that the actual study of the the scripture, of course he could read it because he, he understood Latin, but the actual study of the scripture was not, was not really part of this. In fact, they learnt more about the traditions and the ceremonies than they did about the words of the Lord Jesus. We also know that during this time he, he may have also studied at Cambridge, but we don't have details. For seven years he was at Oxford, and we know it was during this time that William Tyndall was truly converted. He had studied the scriptures himself. If they weren't going to teach it, he was going to learn it by himself. And by the time he finished at Oxford University, he was determined to teach the Bible clearly to the common people. Now, during this time, there were, there were people that did influence him. There were two people in particular. A hundred years earlier, a man by the name of John Wycliffe had translated the Catholic Bible, the Latin Bible, into English. But of course, you know, that was a time when books were handwritten. So not many copies were available, of course. And also Wycliffe's English was an old English. It was very hard to read. But Wycliffe had wanted to bring the scripture to the people. And he knew that people didn't understand Latin. So he wanted to try and translate it into English. There was another man who had a huge impact. His name was Erasmus. And Erasmus was a Dutch scholar, a very, very intelligent man who also wanted to, to really ensure that the scripture from its original was brought to the people. But he, he was very much a scholar. And so what he did was he looked at the original Greek manuscripts and then he translated those into well, it doesn't sound like this, but he kind of put it into Greek again. But he put it into Greek so it could be published. And he also put it into Latin, a better Latin, he felt, than the translation of the Catholic Bible. He wrote, Often the true and genuine reading has been corrupted by ignorant scribes 
or scribes who were half-taught or half-asleep. He really believed that the philosophy of Christ, as, as he called it, was open to everyone. He said, no one should be prevented from being a theologian. Now, although he only translated the Bible into Greek, uh, not the Bible, the New Testament into Greek and Latin, this was actually hugely important and played a huge role in Tyndall's life. Now, after finishing at Oxford, Tyndall wanted to step away from academia. And he did this because he really wanted time, time to understand the scripture, to really read it for himself. And so he took a job, quite an unusual job for someone of of his learning and his stature. He took a job at uh, Little Sodbury Manor, a manor house in Gloucester, not, not too far from where he grew up. And he was actually a tutor of two little boys who lived in this manor house, um, Sir John and Lady Walsh's manor house. So you can imagine that this was not a very arduous task for someone who's graduated with a master's uh, from Oxford University to teach two little boys arithmetic and so on. He was also the private chaplain for the family, and he preached to local congregations. Now, during this time when he, he was preaching, he realized firsthand how removed the common person was from understanding the scripture. He wrote, It was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scripture were laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. He saw that having reciting and reading out the Latin scripture did nothing for the people. And he realized the need for them to read it for themselves. His preaching at this point also made him very well known. And the reason for that was because he spoke directly from the scripture. And in fact, that was really unusual at that time. It was more about tradition. But he wanted to teach the people what was actually in the Bible. And people accused him of being controversial. Now, the Walsh Manor House was a center of many social gatherings, being sort of the the sort of the main kind of house in in the county. Tyndall was also invited to sit at the table for these particular meals. And often they had uh, very high-standing, important guests, which were often clergymen and, and other priests and so on who lived in the county. And during these encounters, it was increasingly clear to William Tyndall that these celebrated men, these highly educated clergy, had no understanding of the scripture. Their entire theology was based on traditions that they didn't even really understand. And these traditions had just been passed down without any real foundational meaning. On one occasion, in a bit of a debate over the dinner table, a clergyman retaliated to Tyndall and said, we had better be without God's law than the Pope's. Of course, indicating that the Pope had far more authority than the Bible itself. Or Tyndall's response was uh, shocking and well-documented in history. I imagine he stood up from that table and he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And he then added, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plough to know more of the scripture than thou doest. Now, his feeling may well have echoed the things expressed by Erasmus and and others, but little did Tyndall also realize that this was the statement of his entire life. His whole life's mission was captured in this phrase. Now, Tyndall started immersing himself in the scripture in order to prepare to translate it into English. Now, this was actually illegal at that time. It was illegal to translate the Latin scripture into the common tongue, whatever that happened to be. And so, of course, in England, that was English. But there was a little clause. You could do this if you had the express permission of the authorities. And Tyndall, being quite young and innocent at this time, he thought that he could get the permission of the authorities to do this thing. 
And so he decided that the only place he would need, he would go to and the best place he could go would be to London. There were two reasons for that. One, he thought that he could get the permission from uh, a bishop, uh, Cuthbert Tunstall, the Bishop of London. And two, because if you wanted to print anything at this time, there were only two printing presses in all of England, and London was a place to print. Now, Tyndall was in his 20s at this point, and he went with such sort of enthusiasm and zeal, and he thought, surely Bishop Tunstall will, will hear my proposal. He, he went with um, an example of his translation work, in fact. He had a, a Greek text, which is notoriously difficult to translate, and he had translated it very carefully into English to show that he was capable of doing this task. Well, he went and met Bishop Tunstall in uh, 1523. And he proposed this and he showed his translation. He told him he, he was capable, he was a linguist, he could do it. But Bishop Tunstall was extremely cold and completely rejected this proposal, this idea that Tyndall could translate the scripture from Latin into English. He was completely unsupportive and would definitely was not going to give any sort of permission. Now Tyndall, of course, being young and I guess fairly naive, was really shocked at this and quite brokenhearted. And he, he didn't realize, though, what he was asking. He was essentially asking for the church to release their control over a scripture that they had kept to themselves for hundreds of years. They, they could interpret and distort things however they liked because people didn't have the scripture. And here was Tyndall saying, I'll bring it to the common people and bypass you. Of course Tunstall was not going to agree to this. But the other thing that Tyndall perhaps didn't realize was what was happening over in Germany at this particular time. Martin Luther had translated the New Testament into German. And on top of that, he had spoken out very, very publicly against the Catholic Church and he had published many tracts, and, and he'd, he'd uh, published many his writing, all things explaining why the Catholic Church was wrong, what their traditions were wrong, things like the indulgences were an absolute fraud, all of this type of thing. And Tunstall had known that some of these works were making their way over to England. Already the ripples were being felt through all of Germany, and Tunstall did not want to risk that happening in England. There was no way. He was going to give any permission for anyone to translate the scripture into English. A certain Humphrey Monmouth, who was a wealthy cloth merchant, was Tyndall's only friend in London. In this big, bustling city, Tyndall realized that he really needed some backing if he were to do this huge task. And he now realized the immensity of this task. You know, what he was doing essentially was now illegal. Well, Humphrey Monmouth uh, gave Tyndall a £10 allowance for him to stay under his roof, for him to preach uh, in in the local church, St Dunstan's at Fleet Street, etc. And Tyndall now had some time to think about what he was going to do, to prepare himself for this huge task of translating the scripture. We have Monmouth's description of Tyndall at this time. He says, he lived like a good priest, methought. And then he talked about how Tyndall would study part of the day and into the night, how he ate only simple boiled food and drank diluted cheap beer, which was their main drink at the time. And he wore no linen. So here we get a picture of Tyndall focused foregoing all the comforts of life, even in food and clothing, so he could study and devote himself to his life's work. He stayed in London for about six months. But as he became more well-known, particularly for his preaching, which was increasingly controversial, he realized that he he really couldn't stay in London. (laughs) The fact is, what he was doing was illegal. The other fact was that Bishop Tunstall actually knew what he was probably going to do. And the other thing is there were only two printing presses in all of England, 
And so if he wanted to go to print, well, it would easily be stopped. So Tyndall now had to make a decision. Was he to wait? Was he to just prepare himself and then wait for the permission of authorities in order to translate? Or was he to flee, to disappear into Europe somewhere and there translate? Well, he knew the Lord had called him, and so in all good conscience he knew he couldn't wait. He needed to do this now. And it was with a very heavy heart that he left his beloved England, not knowing when or if he would be able to return, and sailed over to the low countries, as it was called at that time, uh, Germany. He knew that Germany would be a very good place, There were many printers in Germany, actually. It was quite a a centre of this, uh, much better than England. And so with just Erasmus's copy of the New Testament in Greek and a couple of his draft translations and notes, he left England in 1524 and sailed to Hamburg. Probably from there he went to Wittenberg where Luther lived. We don't know if the two men met. They may well have. And then from there he went on to Cologne, where there were printers aplenty. Now Tyndall really was an incredible linguist. I mean, he was now in Germany, and he could speak German. He could speak Latin, Greek, English, of course, German, French, Spanish, and Italian. And uh, he started his translation work, but of course he had very little help. Everyone around him was not able to speak uh, English. Everyone was speaking in German. And all he had was Erasmus's third edition now of, of the Greek New Testament. He had also Luther's recent German translations, which he could read. And, of course, he, he had access to the, the Latin Bible, the Latin Vulgate. He would have known about Wycliffe's English translations, but they were in such an old and clunky, formal-sounding English that it wouldn't have been much help to him. So with his assistant, he had an English assistant, a young man by the name of William Roy, he began the formidable task of translating first the New Testament into English. We need to imagine this, you know, they had to do this by candlelight, with pen and ink, with with rolls of, of paper, and it was all by hand. But in just over a year, Tyndall had completed the translation of the whole New Testament And in August 1525, he approached a printer in Cologne. And uh, this printer was willing to print anything at a price. He didn't care what it was. And the printer agreed to, to, to do this. Now, there were already bitter opponents who had heard rumors of what Tyndall was doing. In fact, there was a man at this point uh, who had been on Tyndall's trail, unbeknownst to Tyndall. He was called Cochleus. And Cochleus uh, was a fierce uh, enemy of Luther. And when he heard what Tyndall was doing, he wanted to put a stop to it before you know these, these, uh, these New Testaments got out. He had found uh, where Tyndall was in Cologne, And all he did was he went from alehouse to alehouse and talked to the print workers. And finally, when he found a particular alehouse, there were some print workers gathered there. He shouted them all a um, a couple of rounds of wine, and soon they really got talking. And it just took one of those print workers to say that he was in the process of printing something that would change England and send ripples through England. Cochlear said, what's that? And, of course, the print worker said, oh, don't say anything, but... It's the New Testament in English, etc. Well, of course, it didn't take long for Cochleus to track down where that print worker was working, and he organized a raid on the print shop. But thankfully, Tyndall was forewarned, and he managed just to grab his original manuscripts. And he and William Roy escaped into the night and managed to jump on a ship which was heading down the Rhine River. The print house was uh, raided, and all the printing that they had already done was destroyed. But Tyndall had his originals, and he was now in the city of Vams. Here, in the city of Vams, 
the New Testament was finally published. It was 1526, and he had successfully published thousands of copies of the New Testament. Now printed, he needed to get them to England. Of course, you couldn't just, you know, have them in a shipment. It was still illegal. And so Tyndall wrapped them in bales of cotton, and they were transported uh, in, in those cotton shipments from, in, uh, from Germany into England. And they were, they were actually a cloth, well, people disguised as cloth merchants at the other end who received the shipments and, of course, took those uh, illegal New Testaments and started distributing them. Distributing them. There was a certain Honey Lane in, in London where the distrib- distribution sort of took place This was sort of a point where people started to take the Bibles and spread off into different areas of England. And soon, people in in universities had, had these little New Testaments. There were merchants, tailors, students, even peasants were hearing the Word of God in English for the first time. Now, Tyndall had actually printed this on really as cheap paper as he could he could find. And he had also printed it in a quite a small size. We don't imagine the big books of the olden times. We imagine a very small book. It was printed small enough so you could tuck it up a sleeve. Or when pockets came into fashion, you could easily conceal it in a pocket. And he'd done that on purpose. And the cost was actually really affordable. Three shillings and two pence. Now this was a fairly decent, it was, it was pretty much a week's wage for a labourer in England at that time. But like someone like a merchant could easily afford this. And so the circulation began and people started reading the New Testament. But of course, a copy of the New Testament found its way into the hands of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now when he saw it and he read the scripture in plain, vulgar English, He worked quickly to pass a law, to confiscate every copy of the New Testament, and not only that, but pass a law to sentence people to death if they were found in possession of this illegal book, or even selling or distributing it, or even reciting it. Now, Bishop Tunstall, who had had, uh, spoken to Tyndall before, uh, he was approached to speak a fiery sermon against this translation. And not only that, but to to publicly burn it as a way of declaring to everybody what the Catholic Church thought of this material. They they thought it was heresy. But Tan still hadn't done his research into human nature. And so as he fierily declared how it was a, a wrong book and in every way forbidden, more people knew about it. More people were interested And, of course, the fact that he burnt it made people want to get their hands on it even more. Now, when the news of this came to Tyndall in Germany, and when he heard that Cuthbert Tunstall had burnt the New Testament, it broke his heart. He couldn't, he was genuinely shocked. Why would the man do that to the Word of God? But suddenly he realized that this was a real spiritual battle, that everything would be working against getting the word of God to the common people. Now, in 1527, Tyndall's enemies had hatched, well, what they thought was an ingenious plan to stop the New Testament from being distributed. They hired merchants to go and purchase as many copies as they could. And, of course, these would be destroyed But what it also meant was that they would be purchasing huge amounts very quickly at quite a high price. And so, of course, what the archbishop meant for evil, God meant for good. The quick sales and the huge influx of money that this meant, it actually funded the revised edition of the New Testament and enabled Tyndall to put through an even larger print run. Now, for the clergymen, for the priests, and the clergy in England, Tyndall was now enemy number one. 
He was essentially questioning their power, their hold over the scripture. And so Tyndall soon realized that simply just being out of England was not going to keep him safe. Now there would be people trying to track him down everywhere. He had to keep on the move. But he continued to write, and he wrote many works on the justification by faith. He talked about how a true faith produces a living obedience to God's word. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't that your works earned you salvation. And soon, these other writings were finding their way into England. Tyndall was now disguising the print name on his books. You see, in those days, the printer, the person who did the printing, was put on the cover of the book or on a sort of an, in, an inside page. And so now, if you picked up Tyndall's writings or his uh, New Testament, you would find that it was printed by Hans Luft of Marburg. And if you went to Marburg, there was no Hans Luft anywhere. In fact, if you translated it, it was just essentially John Eyre, the printer, a fake printer. In reality, all his works were now being printed from a city of Antwerp in Belgium. Tyndall's publications, and particularly the New Testament, made him known in the royal court. Henry VIII was familiar with the name William Tyndall. Cardinal Wolsey, a very powerful cardinal who appeared before Henry VIII, commissioned three agents to track down Tyndall in Germany. And Tyndall, he had to keep moving. He couldn't settle anywhere. You know, he would be here for a while and on a ship into another city, leaving things in one place, coming back to them later. But he did manage to keep writing. And he wrote The Obedience of the Christian Man. This, to us, seems pretty ordinary, but it was groundbreaking in those days. We must remember that, you know, there, there were no books written about how to, to live the Christian life based on the scripture. And here he was producing this in English. And this was such a practical book. He talked about, in this book, he talked about how a father should govern his household. On top of that, he also talked about how a king uh, would, should be respected by his subjects. He also, in the book, talked about how the Catholic Church didn't have the spiritual authority that it claimed it had. Well, it was said that Henry VIII himself read this book, and it was because Anne Boleyn had it. And uh, Anne Boleyn really liked this book and, and showed it to the king. And he quite liked it too, especially that bit about, you know, the subjects um, having paying good authority to their king. And also, Henry VIII was going through various battles uh, with divorce, and he didn't really like the Pope at that point in his life. And so he quite liked this book and, and all of the things it wrote about the Catholic Church not having the authority that it claimed it had. I don't think that it was because he particularly wanted to be an obedient Christian man. Back to Tyndall. Now he was in Marburg, in Germany. And here he started to learn Hebrew. You see, in England, there was actually no way you could learn Hebrew. No one knew it. But in Germany, there were Jewish populations. There were rabbis. And here, Tyndall started to learn this language. And of course, the reason he was doing this was so he could start to translate the Old Testament. And what a gift Tyndall had, because in such a short time, he managed to learn Hebrew, and he managed to start translating the Old Testament into English. But the manhunt was continuing, and so again, he was constantly on the move. In 1529, he had to get, he traveled to Antwerp, which is modern-day Belgium, and he thought he would be able to print there. And he had actually completed by now his first five books of the Old Testament, and he had the, the manuscripts ready. But then again, he got word that there were people on his trail and it was too dangerous for him to stay, so he had to grab his manuscripts again and jump on a ship to sail to another country, a city, sorry. Well, that particular voyage ended in disaster. A severe storm gathered and the ship went completely off course and became shipwrecked. 
And although Tyndall escaped with his life, he lost his manuscripts of the first five books of the Old Testament. There were no backups in those days, so we would simply have to start again. Meanwhile, so many people in England had been converted by reading or hearing the scripture, the New Testament, in English for the very first time. Now, it's so hard for us to imagine this, but just imagine being under such a burden of the Catholic Church, you know, taxations, the constant fear, the confessions, all this fear of purgatory, and then to open the scripture and to read the words of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine reading the account of Jesus for the very first time? These are the words of the Tyndall translation. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Or then reading, in, you know, in, in Matthew chapter 5, reading the words of the Lord, when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Imagine reading that for the very first time. Well, so many people were totally changed by reading the scripture. I'll tell you the story of two of them. James Bainham was a distinguished lawyer. He read the New Testament in English, and then it was completely changed. And then he wanted to meet with other Christians who had read it to discuss what he read. It was so different to everything he had known before. But of course he was arrested for possessing the New Testament and distributing and, and meeting with others. And he was accused by the very powerful Lord High Chancellor Sir Thomas More for having these prohibited books. And Bishop Stokesley, the new Bishop of London, and Sir Thomas More uh, tried, tried him and, and questioned him. And James Bainham spoke so clearly. He, he said, the scripture has never come to us so clearly as it has in these last few years. This really offended the bishops, of course. And he said, it has been so plainly declared to us, and the church has abused the scripture, interpreting it as, as they wanted to and distorting it to their own ends. But now the scripture is speaking directly to us. And in the words of James Bainham, it is utterly good. Well, of course, this enraged Sir Thomas More and Bishop Stokely. And James Bainham was thrown into prison. And not only that, but he was terribly tortured. The poor man went through so much suffering. He was put on the rack, this horrible medieval torture device that stretched you until your ligaments snapped. He went lame as a result of that. And then they tied ropes around his head. I don't know what they did, but they pulled so hard that he bled out of his eyes. On top of this terrible torture was the constant questioning. And finally... He was told to sign a document to say that he went back on everything he had said and that he would completely commit to the teachings of the Catholic Church and renounce all his former beliefs. In a moment of weakness, James Bainham signed. Of course, he had to pay a huge fine, and then he had to publicly announce that everything he had said and thought before was False, and now he was completely committed to the Catholic Church and all its teachings. The poor man was not at peace. And in four weeks, he stood before the church at St. Austin's, and he declared to everyone that he had done the wrong thing. And he begged their forgiveness. And he said, Oh, my friends, rather die than sin as I have done. Well, of course, the man was arrested again, tortured, whipped, held in the Tower of London. This time he knew there was no way out. Of course, he was sentenced to death by burning. There, tied to the stakes in the public square, and just before the fire was lit, he cried out, Lord, forgive Sir Thomas More. And then as the flames licked around his legs, he said, 
Behold, ye look for miracles. Well, here, here now you may see a miracle. For in this fire I feel no more pain than if I were in my own bed. For it is as sweet to me as a bed of roses. And he died. John Tewkesbury was a leather merchant. He was arrested for possessing the New Testament. And when questioned, the Bishop of London was simply put to shame by this man. Here was a leather merchant answering so clearly on questions of justification by faith. He spoke to them directly from the scripture with such power and wisdom that they were unable to answer him. Well, the bishop and all the learned men in that council were so ashamed and so angry that this mere leather seller could so dispute with them that he too was sentenced to be burnt at the stake. In the same way, so many ordinary people died, and their crime, possessing, reading, selling, distributing, or even reciting the New Testament in English. Back to Tyndall. Tyndall had finally made his way to Hamburg. And uh, here he met another Englishman, a fellow Englishman by the name of Miles Coverdale. Uh, Miles Coverdale himself was an incredible scholar and was also quite a linguist, perhaps not as good as Tyndall. And the two of them worked together to translate again the first five books of the Old Testament. It took Tyndall nine months and it was finally published in 1530. Again, by that fictitious Hans Luft. Meanwhile, Sir Thomas More, the renowned intellectual, the Lord High Chancellor of King Henry VIII, was commissioned to bring Tyndall down in any way, to quell his influence, to stop his, his, his writings from having this influence and in changing England. Sir Thomas More actually said of Tyndall, he is everywhere and nowhere. And that was exactly right. All those agents who'd been sent over to Germany were not able to find him, and yet Tyndall's influence was felt everywhere. While well, Sir Thomas More proceeded to write, and he used his pen to try and bring Tyndall down. He wrote numerous works, uh, something like a quarter of a million words. And within these, we have a huge number of insults. Sir Thomas More was quite good at this. He called Tyndall the hellhound in the kennel of the devil, a new Judas, a beast out of whose brutish, beastly mouth cometh a filthy foam. Even Henry VIII, a very fickle king, it seems, who previously had approved of Tyndall's writing and the obedience of the Christian man, but now had decided that Tyndall was an avowed enemy of the state and that all his writing, and particularly his New Testament, was a pernicious poison. The king commissioned yet another person to try and track down Tyndall over in Europe. They tried a softer approach this time. He employed the ambassador, the envoy to the Low Countries, an Englishman by the name of Stephen Vaughan. Now, Stephen Vaughan was quite a good man. And King Henry VIII said that he would give Tyndall a safe passage back to England. Now, Stephen Vaughan wrote many letters and he, he did work out where Tyndall was. And Tyndall actually replied to one of Stephen Vaughan's letters. I guess Tyndall did want to know what was happening in England. And the fact that the ambassador of England was wanting to give him a message from the king himself, Tyndall wanted to know what this was. Perhaps things had changed. Perhaps the climate in England was different now. So Tyndall met Stephen Vaughan in the middle of a field at dusk, just outside Antwerp in Belgium. And here Vaughan brought the message that the king of England was willing to offer William Tyndall a safe passage back. Tyndall said that he would only agree if the king would authorize a translation of the Bible into English. Tyndall knew, of course, that the king would not agree to this. He also knew that the king would probably not keep a promise to a 
avowed enemy of the state and a heretic. But I can imagine that Tyndall was so homesick at this time. He had been constantly on the move, always looking over his shoulder. And the offer of a safe passage? Oh, it would have been so tempting to go back to his beloved home. Vaughan was quite moved by his meeting with Tyndall. And he wrote later, he said, I find him always singing one note. He wasn't to be persuaded. It was so clear to Stephen Vaughan that Tyndall would not change his tune, so to speak. This man had one clear mission, and he was going to achieve it. Now, Tyndall was very, very careful with his translation. He was constantly checking and revising it, taking into account feedback. Even feedback, things that Thomas More had written as criticism, he would take seriously and consider. But let us take a moment to just consider this translation that he, he actually completed. He wrote in a beautiful-sounding English prose. And we must remember that English at this point was in its infancy. You know, spelling hadn't even been standardized. This was such an incredible feat. And Tyndall, when he couldn't find the exact word to translate the Greek, he would invent a word. And so it's actually Tyndall, more than Shakespeare, we have to thank for so many words in our English language. He didn't ever want to paraphrase or give an interpretation. He wanted to capture the meaning. And so he invented words, godly, long-suffering, beautiful, the word atonement, the word Passover, zealous, peacemaker, all of these came from Tyndall. He wanted to bring the pure word of God in all its mystery to the people. He didn't want to lend his slant on it, his interpretation, or in any way paraphrase. A good example of how he carefully chose a word is what he did with 1 John chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 13. He wrote, God is love. Now, the actual Latin was caritas, charity, and that was the translation, the word that was used in the Latin Bible. But when Tyndall looked at the Greek word agape, he didn't feel that this was right. He felt that this was giving the wrong meaning to who God is. So he wrote, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, and yet have not love, I were a sounding grass, sorry, sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Now, even in the 15th century here, the word charity had the meaning of deeds, acts of kindness, acts of mercy. And Tyndall didn't feel that this was correct. He wanted to show the profound meaning of love, the fact that this was a self-sacrificing emotion that was from, from which the outward actions flowed. It wasn't just the outward actions themselves. He wanted to communicate to people a living, warm, generous Lord Jesus, a God who truly cared. He felt that the image that the Catholic Church had had created of Jesus was of this agonized, silent figure absorbed in his own sufferings with no care at all for the sufferings of any of the lower classes and a God that was to be feared and to be appeased with good deeds. And so he translated charity as love. God is not charity. God is love. Well, Sir Thomas More saw the implication of this, and he was furious. Another example was the word ecclesia. This is the Greek word for church. But for Tyndall, He knew that if he translated the word church, that people in their minds would have this idea of the the political system, the bishops, the taxations, all of those ideas came with the idea of the holy church. He translated the word as congregation because he understood that the Greek word really meant the people, not a system, not an institution, It was now 1534, and Tyndall 
was invited to stay at the house of a wealthy merchant by the name of Thomas Points. Now, Thomas Points owned uh, what, what was known as the Merchant House or the English House. And this was a, this was, I guess you could say it was like an embassy. There were places, rooms that you could rent. It wasn't sort of a manor house or anything like that, but it was run by a, a certain Sir Thomas, uh, sorry, Thomas Points. Now, he actually took a great liking to Tyndall because he himself had been really impacted by reading the German New Testament by Luther. And so he he was very supportive of Tyndall, wanting him to complete this translation work that he was doing. Now, thanks to the generosity of this man, Tyndall was very prolific during this time. He made many changes to his New Testament, 5,000 edits in total, all very small details, phrasing, And because he'd translated the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament now, it also really helped him to clarify his meaning of the New Testament. He also added explanatory notes and cross-references. 6,000 copies of this revised New Testament were printed, and it sold out in four weeks. He also translated Joshua through to Second Chronicles. And interestingly, he also translated the book of Jonah. It was during the year 1535. The Bishop Stokesley, Bishop of London, decided to commission another man to try and track down Tyndall. They'd found a man very suitable to the task. His name was Henry Phillips. Henry Phillips was from a noble family, but he himself was far from noble. In fact, he had racked up such huge gambling debts that Bishop Stokesley knew that this man could could be controlled by money. So he was offered a huge sum to go over to Europe to find Tyndall, and then a very hefty commission to arrest him. And if it was successful, he would, he would get all of that money. Well, they picked the right person for this job. In summer of 1535, Henry Phillips had tracked down Tyndall to Antwerp. He knew he was there. And through the associations that he made with various merchants, he soon managed to find out that Tyndall was at the English merchant house, staying with Thomas Points. So he worked quite slowly. He managed to find himself a room there, He then managed to gain Tyndall's trust over time and established a very warm friendship with him. He feigned interest in the translation work, but of course he he was no scholar himself, but he pretended to really, really support Tyndall. And Tyndall, probably so longing for another English voice, and and he was just known for his simplicity and open-heartedness, he welcomed Henry Phillips with open arms. Henry Phillips almost became a bit of a confidant, and Tyndall showed his translation work to this man. Thomas Points, being slightly more worldly, he had reservations. He wondered why this Henry Phillips was here in the first place. He didn't quite believe his backstory. On one occasion, the two men were walking together, and Phillips suddenly turned to Thomas Points and said, that he was backed with considerable money. Thomas Points didn't click at the time, but he realized later that that was a threat, that actually it was a warning. You keep quiet, because I've got very important people on my side. Phillips already had the inkling that Thomas Points suspected him, and so he knew he'd have to act very quickly. Now, Thomas Points was a merchant, and of course that meant you had to travel. But Thomas was very reluctant to leave the house. Henry Phillips was now very much part of the English house, and Thomas Points felt that there was something not right, but he couldn't put his finger on it. And Tyndall's warm affection for this man made him feel a little guilty that he was painting this picture of Henry Phillips that may not be true. He did travel and he left Tyndall for a few days. Phillips took the opportunity. He knew he would have to act swiftly. He had a few days, and so he put things into motion. First, he pretended that he lost his purse. 
and he asked Tyndall to borrow 40 shillings. Tyndall, who didn't ever have much, and everything he did have just went straight into his translation work. Of course, being as generous as he could, gave him everything that he had. And then Phillips suggested that they go and have a meal together. Well, Tyndall said that he would treat him, and Phillips reluctantly agreed. And so the two men started walking out into the city. As they walked, they came to an alleyway. And Phillips said, after you, to Tyndall. And Tyndall, of course, said, no, please, no, please, after you, go ahead. To which Phillips replied, no, I insist, after you. And Tyndall turned into that narrow alleyway. Phillips was just a step behind. And if Tyndall had turned at that very moment, he would have seen Phillips point and cue But Tyndall didn't turn around, and he walked straight into two soldiers who had been stationed there by Phillips, and he was arrested. What Tyndall thought in that instant, we will never know. Did he recognize Phillips as his betrayer? Tyndall had spent ten years on the run, city to city, here, there, back and forth, He'd never known quite who to trust, which was so hard for a man who was so warm, generous, so trusting. And Phillips had seen this character and had preyed upon it. Well, it was actually said that the officers, the soldiers that actually arrested Tyndall felt such pity for him. He didn't resist arrest. He didn't do anything. And Phillips just disappeared into the darkness. Thomas Point's home was raided, and much of Tyndall's work, his notes and and various manuscripts were taken, seized, and destroyed. But someone in that house had managed to get the manuscripts of Joshua through to Second Chronicles, and those were never found by the soldiers. The suggestion was it was the chaplain of the house, a man by the name of John Rogers, who also knew what Tyndall was doing and really supported him. And he comes later in our story. Tyndall, meanwhile, was taken to to Belgium to the castle of Vilvaud. This was a horrible medieval castle with its moat and drawbridge and impenetrable stone walls and dungeon. Tyndall was tied up and chained to the dungeon, the, the bottom of this castle in the cold, damp darkness. And he was held here for 500 days awaiting trial. This gentle man, so, so unworldly, so simple and trusting, he, he used even this time very well. And in fact, we know that the prison keeper, the prison keeper's daughter and the household were all converted as a result of the time that Tyndall spent in that, in that dungeon. Day after day, he was given the opportunity to recant. He was questioned, uh, all of that, but... People actually wanted Tyndall to change. He was such a good scholar. It would be such a waste if he was sentenced to death. They, they wished that he could just recant. Then he would be so useful. But he would refuse. He was still singing that one note. We get a picture of what it was like. Tyndall actually wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to the lord of the prison in the harsh winter of 1535. He made a few requests, and and the things he was requesting were actually things that he had that had been confiscated. He wrote, My overcoat is worn out. My shirt is also worn out. I I beg you for a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary, and if it be possible, to permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, and my Hebrew grammar, that I might pass this time in study. This was all probably declined. But we hear in this letter no bitterness, no anger, but just a man, cold, tired, lonely, and still firm to that mission given to him by the Lord Jesus. 
Thomas Points, meanwhile, had heard about the betrayal and he was desperately writing to his brother who was in the court of Henry VIII. He appealed for the Tyndall's release over and over again. He wrote to every single person he knew. He pulled as many strings as he could to try and show people that this was a betrayal, that it would be a hindrance to the gospel. Of course, Thomas Points didn't really know the political climate at the time, but he risked everything to try to get Tyndall released. And it was working. Thomas Points had very... Uh, I guess, powerful friends. But Henry Phillips saw what was happening and he slithered in. He wasn't going to lose his hefty commission. He got in first and he told people that actually Thomas Points and Tyndall were both heretics, they were actually working together. Oh yes, yes, Thomas Points says he's written to these people but actually he hasn't. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know these people. He's only saying that he's written these letters. And of course, soon, Thomas Points found that he was to be arrested. Well, Thomas Points was held in a prison, and he knew that he would be sentenced to death. He knew that Phillips was too dangerous. And so he actually managed to escape from prison. And he knew the area around this prison, and he he managed to get out and, and actually evade capture. Horsemen were sent after him, but they couldn't find him. He managed to make his way over to England and his business was completely ruined. He lost his wife, uh, his children. They didn't come and join him over in England. He was a completely ruined man, all because he had tried to support and release William Tyndall. But perhaps Points was familiar with the words of Jesus. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake the same shall find it. Despite the efforts of good good men like Thomas Points, Tyndall stood trial in August 1536. The list of his charges were long, but he was essentially a heretic, an enemy of the state, an enemy of the church. He was dragged out of his dungeon and he was uh, made to wear the priestly robes. He was forced to kneel and then his hands were scraped with glass or or a knife, to ceremonially show the removal of the anointing oil of priesthood. Then the bread and wine was put into his hands and ceremonially removed. His robes were torn off him and he was excommunicated. Then he was led back to his cell and again harassed over and over again to see if he would change his mind and at at last to sign that he would would recant and, and put his trust back in the Catholic Church. But Tyndall would not. He, as Vaughan had rightly said, still sang that one note. There was no chance of him going back. And so on October the 6th, 1536, Tyndall was finally dragged for the last time from his dungeon and paraded through the city. There would have been a large crowd gathered for this public execution. He was tied to a wooden cross A rope was placed around his neck. Brushwood was piled around him and gunpowder was sprinkled liberally through. And then the executioner waited for the sentence to be declared. At that moment, Tyndall lifted his eyes to heaven, knowing he was moments away from a brutal execution. And he shouted in prayer, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And then the signal was given. The rope was pulled to strangle him. The torch was lit and thrown into the, fl- into, the, into the wood and it exploded into a blazing flame. This single-minded, gentle man who brought us the Bible in our language was consumed in flame. Well, the Lord did hear Tyndall's final prayer. In a year, King Henry VIII had approved the publication of an authorised English Bible. This was known as the Thomas Matthew Bible, 1537. But it was actually John Rogers, the chaplain at the 
the English house who compiled all Tyndall's works. They got his New Testament. They got from Genesis to Second Chronicles, the book of Jonah. And Miles Coverdale, who had worked on translating the rest of the Old Testament. This was compiled, but it was known as the Thomas Matthew Bible. Tyndall's ploughboy now had access to the word of God. And it was on Tyndall's shoulders that the King James Version of 1611 was written. In fact, 90% of the King James Version, the New Testament, is Tyndall. And so the English Bible today that we hold in our hands, we must remember that it came from the patient suffering of so many saints who used their God-given gifts to serve their generation so we can serve ours. Now, before his betrayal, Tyndall was most concerned about his young friend, a young assistant by the name of John Frith. This man had been arrested. He'd actually been in Germany with Tyndall, and then he'd gone back to England thinking it would be safe. It was not. He was arrested, and he was now in the Tower of London awaiting his execution. And Tyndall was thinking of him often. John Frith did remain faithful to the end, and he was burnt at the stake, age 30. We're going to end now with an excerpt from the very last letter that Tyndall wrote, just to encourage his young friend, who was very much like a Timothy to him. Dearly beloved, your cause is Christ's gospel, a light that must be fed with the blood of faith. Though we be sinners, yet is the cause right. If when we be, be buff- and if when we be buffeted for doing well, we suffer patiently and endure, that is acceptable to God. For Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Hereby we have perceived love. For we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. He ends the letter with these words, and I imagine his pen shaking with emotion. And if the pain be above your strength, remember, whatsoever ye ask, in my name, I will give it to you. And pray to your Father in that name, and he will cease your pain or shorten it, the Lord of peace, of hope, and of faith be with you. Amen. William Tyndall.